there is no man or woman in the sky punishing us. It just is what it is. And there's so many things that go into life that we can't control. And it was just one of those things that I had no control over. Nobody could foresee me having an incompetent cervix. You know, you don't know until you actually go through it or until you actually become pregnant what your body can handle. And the pregnancy is just such a delicate process anyway. And shit just happens, y'all. Been There Injected That is a TMI podcast about going through infertility and all the hormone injections, awkward moments, and nervous breakdowns along the way. I'm Elise Ash. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Been There Injected That. Today, we have Monique Farouk, who is a fellow fertility warrior. She's a proud NICU mom and the host of the podcast, Infertility and Me, which you should definitely check out if you haven't already. We will link in the show notes. But thank you so much for being here, Monique. Thank you, Elise. I am so, so happy to be here with you today and speaking to your listener friends. Me too. And this is actually kind of our second time chatting on the podcast because I was on your podcast. Yes, and it's going to be coming out soon. Well, thanks. I'm sure you'll, your podcast is going to beat mine because we're a couple weeks behind on editing and production. A lot goes into this. I think people don't really understand that. Yeah, it does. It really is a lot to go into a podcast. And that's why it's so important. Like just anything you do to support the podcast is so important, even if it's just sharing on social media, because most podcasters, the word gets out about the podcast from somebody who's listening because people validate it for you. And so that just any little bit, any mentions, anything like that helps with all, like you have no idea. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I know. I think people don't understand how much power they have like yeah. in like reading the podcast, writing a review, sharing it with their mm-hmm. friends, subscribing. Like those are all things that you can do that really help. And just a ton of time goes into deciding what you want to discuss, figure out topics, building relationships with other, you know, subject matter experts, all the equipment and the editing and the hosting. And it's just like, it's a lot. It's an entire radio station. Pretty (laughs) much. For the most part. (laughs) It is. Yeah, it's totally a radio station just like out of your house. So thank you so much again for being here, Monique. I really appreciate it. I'm wondering if you can maybe introduce yourself to our listeners, you know, your name, where you live, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, so as Elise said, Monique Farouk here coming at you, and we live on the East Coast. I am a Maryland native, and let's see, suffered about four years of infertility, and my son was in NICU for four months, and now I'm a podcaster, stay-at-home mom, work-from-home mom, and all these, so many freaking titles. It's so crazy. (laughs) You have a lot of things going on. Do you feel like it's harder now with the pandemic to kind of wear all those different hats or is it easier? I can't imagine it would be easier, but I just feel like I should offer another option to like, no, it's really hard. (laughs) I feel like it's more difficult only because I cannot go out into public the way I want to. And I don't get that time away from all those hats on the weekends. You know, I've been really strict about social distancing because of the baby. Um, He's a toddler. So putting myself out there puts him at risk when I come back home and so I've been really strict with myself and who I allow into the house or who I go around and then come back home to so I've been like really strict with that so I haven't had no girls time Um, the only people that have been coming to the house is my mom my dad that's it my mom and my dad have been really good about 
keeping themselves away from people so that when they want to come see us, they don't bring anything back either. So, uh, yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot. You can't move the way you want to move, you know. Can you tell us a bit about your own fertility journey? Yeah. So hubby and I were married for like about two years before I got diagnosed with female factor infertility. And I had never been pregnant before, not as a teenager, not as a young adult or anything like that. I was on birth control for quite some time, uh, specifically Depo-Provera, which is the shot that you would get every three months. I started that when I was about 18 and um, I got off of it about a year when I met my husband in 09. So I had been off of it for quite some time by the time we had been married for two years. So it had probably been about four and a half years since I had been on any birth control. And so I was like, I just got to go get checked. And he really wasn't on board with the idea of seeing a specialist yet. He felt like we should just continue to try naturally. I wasn't 30 yet. And so he really felt like we could do it on our own. But I was like, you know, mm -mm, something's not right. So I just had that innate feeling that a lot of us get especially women, about our bodies. And so I went and got checked and had the HSG and the blood work and the ultrasounds and all that good stuff. My high, my thyroid was fine, but I did have right tubal blockage at the time and the radiologist confirmed that through the HSG. And so we had an IUI done and it was unsuccessful. And then we took like a four-year hiatus. We didn't go back to any specialists. Um, I went and got, you know, my my um, pap smears and stuff, but I didn't go back for fertility. And so hubby felt strongly about just continuing to try to have a baby naturally. And with the right tubal blockage, I knew that the chances were like basically cut in half. And, and so, you know, I just went along with it because at the end of the day, I can't go through the treatment if he's not willing to do his part and also be on board with it and be comfortable. It's so hard when you're in a relationship and the two of you don't necessarily agree or like you're on different timetables. I heard somewhere someone was talking about, you know, we rarely reach the same decision with our partner, like at the same time. So sometimes Mm -hmm. there's someone Mm -hmm. who's like a little bit further along and someone else is trying to play catch up. It's really rare when you're on the same page as your partner. Oh, yeah, especially in the beginning. And then especially when you're talking about fertility and trying to have a baby, I think it gets really personal. And I feel like it has the same heaviness as financial struggles. Mm-hmm. Well, because sense. the way that you were brought up and the way you talk about or the way you think about personal things is different than your partner, the way you were raised, the way your parents mm-hmm. talked about it, the goals you have for your life, like they might not always be the same. Yeah, exactly. And so I kind of just feel like, you know, there was some, I mean, it was kind of like some ego too with him being a man. And I think like he was feeling some kind of way because even though he didn't have the diagnosis, it was like, well, I can't get her pregnant. So it was like this ego thing going on too. So it just, it took us four years to get on the same page, you know, and I basically was just sitting around waiting for him to get on board because me, I was ready four years ago, you know. Was that hard for you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It created a lot of bitterness and resentment and um, a lot of unnecessary disagreements because I was mad. I was mad as hell that it was happening and I was mad as hell that he wasn't ready. Like, come on. Yeah. Yeah. Like, hurry up. And I think in general, like women have more of this like biological let's get it done yeah like i'm not getting more fertile with time passing and so you can feel like get over yourself dude (laughs) like and i mean i've heard so many stories of 
husbands who don't even want to like ejaculate in a cup i'm like this is literally the bare minimum do you understand like how invasive my tests have been right exactly and that's what like was really pissing me off because i was like yo all you gotta do is give your freaking sperm up in a cup yeah in a room and me i might have to take months and months of shots i might you know i gotta get these eggs retrieved then i gotta get it put back in you know, and then if it goes well, you have to be pregnant for nine months. You know, like it's yeah, come on. it's a huge commitment. It's so I just was like, put you like I don't I understand it, but it really pisses me off when the ego blocks people from doing what's right at that moment or what's in the best interest of the circumstance. Ego really pisses me off really pisses me off it really does and and that's what whether it's male or female um no matter if you're in a heterosexual or same-sex relationship like ego you want to piss me off bring the ego into it for sure so when you decided you were going to move forward with additional treatment can you explain kind of what that decision looked like yeah so it was basically another four years go by i'm 32 getting ready to turn 33 the same year but late because my birthday's late in the year it's in october and so this was january february of 2016 and i'm like so what are we going to do and that was basically that's exactly how i said i was like so what are we going to do it's four years i've given you time i've given myself time we've had all these stupid disagreements and not being on the same page so what are we going to do because it's been four years and nothing is happening and he's like, well, you know, we work a lot and we always haven't had enough sex during the week. I said, it's not about having enough sex. It's about the fact that it's been four years and then within a four-year period for somebody who's fertile, she's going to uh, wind up pregnant at least once. And I said, mm-hmm. I haven't been on birth control for six years. Let's do the math, sir. You're, come on now. We're both mm-hmm. very intelligent people. Don't play games with me. Like <laughs> so I was like, you know, just think about it, dude. Like, come on. It's been six years since I've been on birth control and I've never been pregnant. Not a miscarriage, not an ectopic pregnancy, nothing. So is that when you decided to go back to your clinic? Did you go to a different clinic? It was a different clinic because we were back home in Maryland. The first clinic was in Pennsylvania. And so we were there for like three years in Pennsylvania. Then we moved back home to Maryland. And I was just at my freaking wit's end with waiting. (laughs) And then basically I was just waiting for him to, I guess, what's the word I'm looking for? Basically it was like wearing him down, you know, Mm -hmm. and... um. And I was like, it's now or never, man. It's now or never. I said, we have the money. It's not like we don't have the money to pay out of pocket for it. Because like in 2016, there were some mandations within the U.S., but there weren't as many as there are now, I should say, like within uh, different states and stuff. And so Maryland hadn't quite come to a whole lot of decisions yet in 2016 about um, whether fertility treatment was going to be mandated. We pay for everything out of, out of pocket and all that good stuff. But so I found a new clinic because I heard about them on the radio and their founder actually had won many, many accolades and was always in Washington, D.C. something. And they had three clinics and I heard a commercial maybe about three times before I called and looked for it on Google and told Hubby about it, showed him the website, let him, you know, look at some things on their website and, and everything. And so then I had my first consultation in late April of 2016, early May. The right tubal blockage was gone, but I was showing signs of hypothyroidism, the hormonal disorder, and 
also some uterine polyps. Um, I had some cervical polyps, but they weren't of any concern because they didn't cause me any pain. But she was more concerned about the uterine polyps. So I had to have the procedure to um, have those removed and then be on a level thyroxin for three months for the high road and making sure my T3 and all those TS, TSH and all that was balanced. So then we, um, after that, we had our first cycle of natural cycle IVF. Were you open with your friends and family about what was happening, like that you were getting ready to do IVF and you'd been trying? Like, were you confiding in any friends or family or anything? My, my mom and my dad knew, and I had an aunt who had a diagnosis of infertility as well, and she never had children. She doesn't have any children. Her and her husband, and she knew, and I didn't tell my sister, and my sister and I are very, very, very close, but my sister has, has birthed three children naturally, uh, one of which during that time of my fertility diagnosis. And so she didn't know about it either really until like the last minute, until 2016. I didn't tell her about my original diagnosis until 2016. And then um, I don't have very many friends, but they didn't know either until at the last minute as well. So I kind of waited a long time before I told anybody, years. So you decided to do IVF and then what happens? And so July of 2016 was our first egg retrieval. And so because I had natural cycle IVF, it's very mild and less invasive. I don't have any pile shots or anything like that, but I was on progesterone suppositories as well as the baby aspirin. Everybody's on that. And then I was on estrogen and I had a trigger shot. But that's usually about it. It wasn't a whole lot. I mean, my medication bill compared to other people was like a dream come true, you know? Yeah, yeah. um, Natural cycle, they only um, retrieve one egg. Even if there's a whole lot of them in there, they only retrieve one because they don't want to stress the body out with the possibility of twins. Mm, And mm -hmm. so when I had the retrieval done, the next day the doc was... um, she called me and told me that I didn't fertilize, like it wasn't fertilizing at all. And I knew that it wasn't going to moving forward. So the egg just wasn't a good egg, that, that, that cycle. And so the next month comes around and we did the egg retrieval again. And my hubby and I have ran to the beach for a weekend really quickly in Delaware and at Rehoboth Beach. And so we got the call while we were there that it was progressing nicely and that we would do a day three transfer, fresh transfer. It was looking good. It was, you know, it was just, it was good. So had the retrieval um, done, got the call. Then we go for the transfer. Of course, they put me to sleep and all that. I'm in there saying all kind of silly stuff to the doctors <laughs> and the anesthesiologists. They were done with me by the time everything was over. Do you, but... <laughs> did they tell you what you were saying? I I remember making a joke when I was like, when they were counting me down, I remember making a joke. I don't remember what the joke was, but I just make, <laughs> remember making a joke because everybody started laughing. Oh my I, gosh. I just have that. I still know that I still have that image in my head and being in that room because my clinic has their retrievals done in, in office. They have enough space to do everything in house. Gotcha. And so the um, embryologist was in there and everything and the anesthesiologist was, was this guy, you know, very uh, conservative and <laughs> very, <laughs> and very stiff. And he was like, oh my God, this lady's crazy. You know? Oh my gosh. I think I was making a joke about my hair because my hair is really curly. So I had it up in like a big pineapple puff and I was making a joke because they were like, oh my gosh, all this hair. And they were trying to put the cap on my head. To cover oh. <laughs> I think I said something crazy about my hair or something like that. And the whole room freaking just like bursted out into, into laughter. And that was the last thing I remember and then I woke up and I was all loopy and stuff so 
it was um it was a great day. Hubby was really good and he we went out to eat afterwards. My mom was um with us too, so went out to eat later on that evening when I was feeling better and just chillaxed, man, until I got the call and they asked me the next day if I was doing okay and I said, Yeah, I'm fine, I'm not having any, you know, symptoms or anything like that. So then began the two week wait. I was I was at peace with whatever was gonna happen and I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that I did have like that four year time to really process the fact that there's um, 80, 70, 80% chance I would never have kids naturally. And mm-hmm. so I didn't do acupuncture, but I did see like a Reiki specialist during that time and hypnotherapy and all that stuff. So I had done a lot of like self-development, self-improvement, mastering your mind type of things um, coupled with meditation and yoga and all those things that help bring you groundedness. And a lot of people don't realize how effective it can be when you're going through something that can be so traumatic. Because when you when you use these tools and you use these practices, because you've been doing it for some time, you remember to, okay, focus, girl. Just breathe, take a minute, and let the dust settle. You know, so I had all those things in place before we moved on to natural cycle IVF. Yeah, I mean, that those are skills that you need to develop, like especially yeah. for those of us in the U.S. where we're just go, go, go. We're constantly mm-hmm. in fight or flight. I mean, it's so hard to turn off your brain and find quiet and find ways to settle everything down and get into that rest and digest state. And so I think it can take a while and it can take almost like training. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely a form of discipline. And that's one of the many, um, well, one of the few things that is taught through meditation, teachings, and yoga is that it's a discipline, it's a skill, and you have to develop it. And, it, and you get better with it at time, with time and, and, you know, being consistent. And so it really helped me during my two-week wait because I remember – during that four year period, you know, you always, no matter what your diagnosis is, you always have this inclination like, well, maybe this will be a miracle month and I won't have to go back for treatment and it'll just happen naturally, you know? It was a lot of that during the four year period. And so I had done many, many two week waits over the years, you know? Yeah. And so when beta day, beta week came up, I had some spotting that weekend before and I had some, let's see, uh, spotting again like that Friday or Saturday pink and brown, a mix of both. And then that happened. That stayed for like a good three to four days. I know this because I still have the app. I still use the same app <laughs> for tracking. That's and like so one I, of the benefits of those apps. Yeah, it has like yes, all of your everything you've ever, yeah, all your data. I mean, like my beta test numbers and everything is still in there. And so it was four days, you know, four, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, and then Tuesday, I was supposed to get my period. My period has never been late. It doesn't matter what kind of hormonal issue I was having, what kind of uterine polyps, nothing. Nothing stopped my period from coming on time except for maybe like a change in seasons and it'll come like a day or two later. So I knew I was going to know before then that if I, by beta day, I was going to be at least still pregnant a little bit, you know, mm-hmm. so. What were your feelings around getting that call and hearing that news? Oh my gosh. Like, so Friday comes along and I'm like, mom. I didn't get my period. You know, I was supposed to get my period on Tuesday. And she was like, well, did you get any kind of bleeding? I was like, just some spotting. But I said, it stopped. Like by the time beta day came, I was stop- I had stopped spotting. And I wasn't having any breast tenderness. I didn't have 
any symptoms at all. Mm. And that's why I tell people sometimes, you know, don't worry about the symptoms because the symptom spotting stuff. Oh my God. It'll make you nuts. Completely insane. Okay. And so I went really early that day to Virginia to get my testing done. And so by 3 30, 4 o'clock, they were calling me right before closing and let me know what happened. And I guess there were some clients still in the building because the nurse was like kind of talking real low. She was like, Okay, I got your beta members. And I was like, Oh my God. And she called me instead of my doctor. So it must be good news, right? Yeah. So she was like, Your beta was 786 and da 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 da. So, like, I. I'm I'm not an outwardly like emotional person all the time. And so like I was smiling while we were on the phone, but it wasn't like no yay, like yeah. it wasn't anything like that. I was just I was at peace and I was grounded, you know, because I had already made up my mind that whatever was gonna be was gonna be. So it was out of my control at that point. But yeah, it was um I called hubby afterwards. I said, uh, we're pregnant. I'm still pregnant. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, he couldn't believe it. We'll be right back. When you're trying to get pregnant, the sheer volume of products and supplements can be completely overwhelming. There are so many vitamins, ovulation trackers, apps, woof. So if you're looking for a place to start, check out our deals page at fruitfulfertility.org deals. We partner with the most amazing companies in the industry who all want to help get you pregnant. Whether it's a new meditation tailor-made for an IUI or IVF cycle or access to fertility nutrition courses designed by experts, we've got you covered. Check out all of our partner deals at fruitfulfertility.org slash deals. Now back to the show. So when did you know in the pregnancy that things weren't really going according to plan? Well, my pregnancy... With like most pregnancies, you know, you might have a little scare here or there. So like about 14 weeks after I had stopped estrogen and progesterone, I was still on a Tylenol, but, and I was still on my level thyroxine for my, my hormones, but I had been a week and a half off of progesterone and estrogen. And so I'm like, oh my God, this is some bull crap. I just got off the estrogen and progesterone. Maybe I should have just kept taking it because I still had some left. So I was like, maybe I should have just kept freaking taking it because I started spotting in one night on a Friday. And when I went to the bathroom and urinated, after I urinated, some blood came out and it was like kind of like coming out, you know, kind of kind of fast. So I was like, what the hell is going on? Oh, my God. So I jumped up, put a pad on. I had to take myself to the hospital because husband was still at the restaurant. So it was he wasn't home yet. And so they checked the baby with the ultrasound and stuff. And he was OK. His heart was good. His heart rate was good and all that. And so when I went to see my OBGYN that Monday, because I was already scheduled to see her anyway, she said that my placenta was close to the opening of my cervix, but it wasn't previa. And previa is when the, when the um, placenta covers the, the opening to the cervix and the uterus. And um, it just makes everything worse with the pregnancy. Yeah, it can complicate yeah, a pregnancy really for sure. Badly, really badly. So she said it was just close, but it wasn't there yet. And that is what caused the bleeding. So I'm like, oh, my God. I am not going to lose this baby after going through all this treatment and stuff, which is why my heart really goes out to those who miscarry after getting fertility treatment and getting pregnant, because I know how I felt that night, almost feeling like I was going to lose a baby. It's, um, it just makes you scared, you know? And I was, my husband was worried. He, he was constantly worried. He didn't even get to enjoy me being pregnant because he was worried, 
all the time that I was going to miscarry. Something bad was going to happen because we had went through all this to get pregnant with him and with the baby and stuff. And so I didn't have any more scares until 23 weeks, which is when I went into preterm labor again on a Friday night. And I was on bed rest for a week before I gave birth at 24 weeks, four days, exactly a week after that. So when you were going into preterm labor, were you starting to have contractions? Like, were you thinking, is this normal? Like, what what happened? It was kind of like the 14-week scare where I went to the bathroom and I started gushing blood again. And I got myself to the hospital. Um, it was a Friday night, so hubby hadn't gotten home yet. He closes late on Fridays. And I get to the hospital and they check my um, cervix. And they were thinking I was like two to three minutes, uh, centimeters dilated, but I actually were, was only one. And my cervix was super soft, more way softer than it should have been at that point in pregnancy. And they rushed me to Washington Hospital Center in D.C., the specialist for high um, risk pregnancies came to see me a few days later. And he said that I was only a centimeter dilated. And because I had been through IVF, you know, it can increase the chances of preterm labor. My cervix just wasn't staying closed. It was it was incompetent, basically. And so they had just plans for me to stay in the hospital for the remainder of my pregnancy for four months, if need be. How did it feel to hear that news that you were going to have to be in the hospital the rest of your pregnancy? I mean, it was devastating because I knew that I wouldn't be able to do all the normal pregnant things as my pregnancy progressed. And I knew that I wouldn't be able to go out with my big belly into the world like I wanted to. Um, because, you know, when you have fertility, you mean, well, any woman has an idea of what she wants her pregnancy to look like. She wants to be able to go out in public and show off that belly, you know, and take pictures and have the baby shower. Like I didn't get to do all of those things. Yeah. And, you'd already had so many of like the quote unquote, like normal mm-hmm. experiences taken away from you. Mm-hmm. Like here was just more stuff. It was just on top of, I'm like, oh my gosh, like what did I do to deserve all of this trauma, you know, from being diagnosed with infertility to now being in preterm labor and then giving birth at 24 weeks, four days. And I, and when I gave birth for a week later, that's when I felt contractions for the first time, but I didn't know that it was contractions. I thought they were just Braxton Hicks because for two weeks prior, I had, my belly had started exercising. My uterus had started exercising with Braxton Hicks. And so I knew what it felt like. And I thought that's what was happening. And I was in the hospital. I was on the phone with my grandmother at the time. It was inaugural Friday, 2017. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, girl, of all days, right? Seriously, because, like, the world isn't enough of a dumpster fire. (laughs) What else? (laughs) Like, you can't have, like, a day. I'm telling you. And so I go to the bathroom again. It was a Friday again. It was like everything happens to me on freaking Fridays, man. It's crazy. So it was a Friday again. And I go to the bathroom again. I urinate. And then my, I felt my sack coming down, like literally. And I put my hand there and I could feel my sack. And because he was still so young, he was still breached. He hadn't flipped around yet. And I was just like, oh my gosh. So I jumped up and I paged the nurse and I was like, my baby's coming. I can feel the sack. Oh my I God. It my hand. Yeah. It was wild, girl. I was glad that I was in the hospital though when it happened. Do they know why this happened? Like, was there anything they learned later? Incompetent that... cervix. Okay. I, I w- it, to get pregnant again with a second, I would need a cerclage. Okay. Got it. Yeah. Wow. 
So you give birth at 24 weeks. Was your care team giving you statistics or odds about what was going to happen to the baby? Yeah. So after he was born, that's when we got the statistical information by the doctor, one of the lead doctors of the NICU. And she basically came in the next day and she was like, you know, he's a boy. You had IVF and you had preterm labor. And the chances of his survival was less than 50%. And it was so low because he was a boy. Boys tend to develop slower than girls. And they tend to die more than girls being born so early. So, of course, that's like a smack in the goddamn face. Like, this is some bull crap. Here I was getting ready to give my my husband his firstborn son. You know, that I think that's a lot of men's dream is to have a, a son first. And we might freaking lose him. So... It was just it was just all around traumatic. It was just all around traumatic for both of us. And mind you, my husband had never been able to feel him move in utero, even though I could feel him. He was still so small, you know, he couldn't feel him that much outside of um, utero. So he never had a lot of experiences too during pregnancy that a uh, fertile woman's husband would experience as well. No, and and twenty four weeks is incredibly early. Early, I mean. Yeah. When we talk about premature births, sometimes that's like 30 weeks, sometimes that's 32 weeks. Like even those babies sometimes need to be in the NICU for a while. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 24 weeks. I mean, that's like I had a friend who had a baby at 24 and a half weeks, too. And they were calling her a micro preemie. Yeah. Yeah. That's the extreme version of it. And they save babies now as young as 23 weeks. (sighs) Yeah. So um, the the advancement in medical technology is, is significant. You know, when you think about 35 years ago, like in the 80s when we were born, it's significantly higher. Oh, yeah. Uh, baby born at us. 24 weeks yeah. when, we, when we were born, I mean, wouldn't have of. had a chance. I mean, they yeah. didn't have anywhere near close to the technology, which makes me feel excited that potentially there'll be more and more resources in the future. Exactly. To be able exactly. to help more babies. but. Gosh, what a what a crazy time. How were you feeling physically? Physically, you know, I had just been cut open and I was being told to walk. I didn't want to walk. I was, you know, doped up on medication for pain and I couldn't laugh. Even if somebody tried to make me laugh, it would hurt. And I had my milk was coming in. I didn't have any issues with milk production. You know, the first three days is kind of just like... Um, I forget what it's called, the first three days of the milk, but it's really thick and white. And so I was pumping that for him in the hospital so that they could take it to the NICU and feed it to him through the IVs. He wasn't old enough yet to have it through um, intubation, through the tube. And so they were feeding it to him. Um, They were giving him his vitamins. The first three days, they really just gave him liquid vitamins, IV fluids, right? And Mm -hmm. then after this, after around like seven days old, that's when they started giving him, introducing him to the breast milk. And I coupled the breast milk and pumping for him exclusively his first 13 months is probably more than 50% of why he survived. And I was eating, you know, a well-balanced diet before and during and after pregnancy and taking all the DHEA for his brain health and his mental development and physical development. All that stuff is so important um, because you pass that along to your baby if you're going to breastfeed and formula feed. Mind you, he did have formula mixed in with the breast milk because it has more fat in it and to Mm -hmm. build up his fat system and, and all those things. But he never rejected breast milk, which was like 
Ah, the yeah. heavens were singing. So he did really good with that. He's had he's had some surgeries while he was in the NICU. Um, he didn't have any retinal problems with his eyes. He never had any issues with his hearing development. He did have an issue with his lungs and he has a scar under his left underarm where they had tubes in his lungs to remove pockets of air that had gotten stuck essentially. And he had that for a few days, for about seven days, and then they took it out. He was okay after that. And of course, you go through uh, blood transfusions a lot the first month. You know, it's just so many things that the little body hasn't developed yet. And so if he was going to be born very early, 24 weeks, four days was a good week because his lungs were developed to a point where he could at least be supported by an oscillating machine and how I'm being given oxygen and help with his breathing on his own and such. So it was a long ride, you know. I mean, after you go through infertility or any kind of miscarriage, trauma, and stillbirth trauma, you never think that it'll be a month and a half, two months before you hold your baby for the first time. No, how could you ever anticipate that? And I think yeah. a lot of times fertility warriors, we think, well, I paid my dues. Like nothing no. else bad can happen because I already went through my hard thing. And so that's why I think sometimes when things take a turn and it's hard again, it can be even tougher for some yeah. of us who have that mentality of like, what now? Are you are you for real? Yeah. Yeah. And at the end of the day, you just got to remember that this is life and there's no man or woman in the sky punishing us. It just is what it is. And there's mm -hmm. so many things that go into life that we can't control. And it was just one of those things that I had no control over. Nobody could foresee me having an incompetent cervix because the, the, the cervical polyps that I had didn't show any signs of weakening my cervix or anything like that. So it wasn't concerned. It wasn't anything that the doctors foresaw. You know, you don't know until you actually go through it or until you actually become pregnant, what your body can handle. And the pregnancy is just such a delicate process anyway. And shit just happens, y'all. How long was your son in the NICU for? Four months. Four yeah. months. Four whole How months. How did it feel bringing him home finally? I mean, it was like, it was like an outer body experience. It was, it was like I was watching myself on the TV screen that day. And, and watching the whole the whole day play out. It's really emotional. Um, cried the whole time, uh, walking him down. His nurse walked him down to the car with us and everything. You know, it was surreal watching all the nurses and the doctors come in and say bye to him. And it's, it's so crazy. And um, I send cards every Christmas, you know, thanking them for all that they do. And mm -hmm. I've donated some clothes and blankets and stuff since he's been born. And like, it'll, they'll always have a place in my heart. And I always tell myself, if I ever win the lottery, I'm giving them like half. Mm. It's the work they do is so important and so yeah. big and means so much to families who are really in crisis and kind of at their lowest low and just so stressed. Yeah. I was just grateful that we didn't lose him because somebody did lose a baby while we were there. And oh my gosh, it was just devastating. So devastating. The baby was 23 weeks and she didn't survive. And the mother was going crazy. Like I just, whew, I get chills every time I think about that day. It was, it's, um, 
And then there was women who had twins, you know, that were mm. born just as early as Omar was in 20 something weeks. And so it's so traumatic. And I, I just never thought that that was going to be my pregnancy story. I was very naive in believing, and I'm not trying to scare anybody, but I'm just giving the real facts is that you just don't know what's going to happen after fertility. You don't know. Is preterm birth more common in infertility patients? Like, was that something that you were told? It is more common in IVF moms, but I was not told that. No, it wasn't until after everything that I found out that women who go through IVF have a higher chance of preterm labor. Yeah, I I had never been told that either when we were going through IVF, but had heard many stories and was kind of questioning like, okay, is this statistically relevant or is this just the experiences I'm hearing? And um, Mm -hmm. it does Mm -hmm. sound like it is more common. It is. Yeah, it definitely is. And I think there's been, of course, there's been more research since I've had Omar and everything. But no, I was not told that. But I I did know and I was told that I was high risk because of IVF, which made sense to me, you know, from a medical standpoint. So I guess I just didn't know enough of the details of what that high risk entailed. You know, I didn't have any high blood pressure or anything like that during pregnancy. I wasn't diabetic. You know, I was in good health. I was at a good weight. Do you have any words of wisdom and or encouragement for parents who might have to be in the NICU for a while? You got to really just take it. Really what I did was I took a lot of pictures. I took a lot of videos because when I had to leave every night, it was like my heart was breaking all over again. And I wouldn't go to sleep. It wasn't a night that went by that I didn't go to sleep or have a video in watch it before I went to sleep to bring me comfort and to give me peace. You know what I mean? So do what you have to do to keep sane, to stay grounded, cry. It doesn't matter when, whether you're in the NICU at that moment with the baby or not, cry. Because it was many days that I cried. I'm sorry, Alicia. It's okay. (laughs) Can you sit on the couch right there, please? A few more minutes. Thank you. Appreciate it. So... You know, we did a lot of videos, a lot of pictures, and just because whatever happened, whether he survived or not, I needed documentation that this really happened. Mm -hmm. And so you have to take it, like, there were seconds by seconds, minutes by minutes, and then the the minutes turned into hours, and then the hours turned into days, where as far as being able to cope. And so I just say, take it day by day, take it moment by moment if you need to, hour by hour, whatever you need. Because holding it in and bottling it in is not going to do you, your spouse, or the baby any good. Thank you so much, Monique, for being our guest today and sharing your story and for starting the Infertility and Me podcast. I really appreciate it. I know it's a huge fan favorite in the community. So go ahead and give that a listener a follow. Um, and thanks again for sharing your story. I, I really appreciate it. I know the community does, too. Thank you so much, Elise, for having me and and letting me uh, speak to your listeners and just putting the awareness out there because, you know, there's not enough talk about fertility and, and the trauma behind it either. Totally. Thank you so much. In There Injected That is produced by Fruitful Fertility and hosted by myself, Elise Ash. Thanks for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a rating and review, subscribe to get updates, and visit our website at fruitfulfertility.org. Thanks for listening.